Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the beauty that is your church. That we have the opportunity to come each week as a people of God and to study your word. Thank you for Sunday school. It's, it's a, a wonderful means of, of communicating the truth that allows dialogical interaction, uh, interaction between questions and answers and the people and the ones you have called to lead the people, Father. And I just thank you. Pray that you keep us holy, keep us humble, that you keep us in your word, keep us focused on the truth. Uh, use the Spirit to uh, convict us when we step out of the truth that uh, something's just not right. We've got to go deeper. We've got to figure it out. Something. Don't ever let us teach another that which is not your beautiful, pure, and holy word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are on Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines and uh, uh, To Change Your Everyday Life by Paul Tripp. Uh, this is part one of the doctrine of sin in everyday life. I mentioned last week we're going to make this a three-parter. Um, this week we're doing only two sections that um, really deal with a question. Most of this is just kind of reading what he has to say and then get, letting, allowing me to get you thinking about what he just said. There's no big uh, theology that's unveiled today. It's, it's really just kind of getting a... Uh, an appreciation for sin, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of, that allows us to understand the brokenness of this world, the, the, the place we live in that is not designed to be lived the way that uh, Satan would have us live it. So with that, um, Mark, if you want to uh, take control of the microphone, uh, like I said, at the bottom of this page, we won't do any reading until the bottom and then uh, excuse me, we won't do any questioning uh, discussion until the bottom of this page, and then we go all the way through page two, and it's not until the bottom of page three where we see the, uh, the last question. Of course, each question is a little multifaceted, so we can, we'll have plenty of time to interact. Okay, with that, let's go ahead, Mark. Sin is everywhere you look, twisting and distorting the good things God created. You don't have to do a deep dive analysis to see its trouble in you and all around you. It gives us grave concern for the trouble we see in others while causing us to minimize the trouble in ourselves. It produces a vile, self-interested anger in you while at other times giving you reason for righteous indignation. Its presence means temptation is all around, leaving you susceptible to its draw. It causes young people to demand their own way and to lose their way. It corrupts our institutions, creates social unrest, prompts nations to war, and divides families and churches. It gives falsehood and platform, a platform and foolishness the power to seduce. It will be with us until the final trumpet sounds the note of our liberation. We will be battle-scarred and exhausted as we burst forth with a never-before-experienced joy. Yes, sin truly is humanity's ultimate disease, its dark dilemma, and its woeful curse. He's going to continue to paint this picture so we have a, a robust understanding of the destruction that sin has brought into our lives. Imagine no global pandemics, no poverty anywhere, no disease and no famine. Imagine no refugee camps, no war-torn cities, no parentless children. Imagine no war, no nuclear standoffs, and no terroristic threats. Imagine a world at peace everywhere and, at all, and all the time. Imagine no ethnic animosity and no racial hatred and no systems of injustice. Imagine every person being respected as God's image bearer. 
Imagine no infant's life stolen from him before he is born. Imagine no dictators, no anarchist cells, and no international unrest. Imagine classrooms around the world only ever teaching what is true and imparting to students what is wise. Imagine everything that God created, every plant, animal, landmass, and body of water, stewarded with care and to, honor, and to the honor of the Creator. Imagine global cooperation for the good of creation and the welfare of everyone made in the image of God. Imagine media always broadcasting what is true and beautiful all the time. Imagine every technology that is developed being used for the good of the earth and for the cause of human thriving. Imagine all people loving God above all else and loving their neighbors as themselves. Imagine peace and harmony everywhere all the time. Imagine no falsehood ever spoken or ever believed. Imagine unbroken, never-ending shalom. Imagine our world without sin. Examine your own life, examine your own heart, and examine your own track record. What, what would your story be like, and what would your life be like, and what would your relationships be like if they were not stained and twisted by sin? Imagine doing everything out of a pure heart of love for and worship of God. Imagine never being wrongfully angry. Imagine never saying a word that wasn't motivated by love and a desire to give grace to the hearer. Imagine never wanting to be the center of attention. Imagine never being attracted to what lies beyond God's boundaries. Imagine always loving what is true and always speaking the truth. Imagine living without fear, disappointment, and discouragement. Imagine never having your heart broken. Imagine never doing anything to hurt or harm another. Imagine always being gentle, kind, and patient. Imagine always loving to spend time in God's word and adoring your communion with God in prayer. Imagine always being a joyful servant of God and others. Imagine your life being a chronicle of unbroken righteousness. Imagine a life without sin. I am afraid we are so used to sin-stained world, which is so much a part of our normal daily lives, that we lose sight of the very fact that it has messed up everything in our lives. I'm afraid we've gotten used to the horror that we live with every day. I am afraid that we forget that sin makes everything in our lives more difficult and dangerous than God ever intended it to be. I'm afraid we should deeply I'm afraid what should deeply disturb us doesn't disturb us at all. I'm afraid that what never was meant to be has become what we now expect. I am afraid that things that should get our attention and break our hearts are so routine that they barely get our attention anymore. I'm afraid that we learn to live alongside of what we should mourn and abhor. I'm afraid that the presence of sin in us and around us is so familiar that it doesn't make us afraid and sad as it should. We should, when we ignore, when we ignore or minimize the horrible results of sin, when they become just another part of our lives, then we devalue the rescue of God's reconciling grace, and our hearts do not long for that place where sin is no more. So he's going to shift directions, and he's going to give wonderful realities. In other words, when we see the brokenness of sin, then it causes this in us, if we are, are, are godly and holding on to the, the truths of a wonderfully compassionate a merciful God. So my question to you is, which of the following realities comes most naturally 
in your life and why. So let me read to you the, I think there's four, maybe five realities that he has listed out here. When you are brokenhearted by the damage of sin, nothing is more beautiful to you than God's redeeming love. Or, when you recognize and confess the damage that sin has done to your life, nothing is more wonderful to you than the rescuing power of divine grace. Three, when you live with an awareness of the damage and danger of sin, you are deeply grateful for the, for the present promises and power of your Savior, Jesus. And four, another option here, last option, when you live with the destruction of sin in view, you want to be God's tool of justice, mercy, and compassion for those who are suffering sin's consequences You simply cannot minimize sin without devaluing God's grace and your call to be a tool of that grace in the Redeemer's hands. So again, the question I pose is, which comes most naturally to you and why? There's probably something you can point to in your your past that you've experienced that says, ah, I went through this, whether it's personally or I helped a friend through that. I know about this. I've seen this in, in life itself. And thus, it, it's, it's the one that impacts you most. I will, I'll lead off by saying that, number four, when you live with the destruction of sin in view, you want to be God's tool of justice, mercy, and compassion to those who are suffering sin's consequences. I, I can... I, one of the motivating factors for me becoming a police officer was to see injustice. Um, it is something that just rubbed me wrong, and, and maybe it was because I was from a family of 10, and you, could see, you had your own little community, and if you saw injustice, you know, if you weren't strong enough to take action, you'd have to compel the, 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 the brother or sister that is bigger and stronger could to, to intervene and, and help out and do whatever they could to rectify and get this family straightened out because of the injustice or whatever it was, that there was a drawing of injustice. But what was interesting, what I found out um, through the PD was I had no means to do anything other than punish the justice, bring that justice to the courts, and the courts would bring about uh, justice, bring the injustice to the courts, and the courts would bring about ju- uh, justice. But they really couldn't do anything to the person or for the person who had experienced the injustice. That side was left out, and that component was left out. So when he says here, when you live with the destruction of sin in view, every day you go out under the streets, every day you're investigating a different crime, people don't call you to welcome you over for dinner, they call you because they have had an injustice done to them. So when you live with the destruction of sin in view, you want to, to be God's tool of justice, mercy, and compassion to those who are suffering sin's consequences. You simply cannot minimize sin without devaluing God's grace and your call to be a tool of grace that is in the Redeemer's hands. That's one of the reasons why um, I think the Lord steered me first before I was a a pastor preaching. I was first a, uh, a pastor who came along those who were hurting. It wasn't something that, you know, something virtuous. I'm not virtually singing, singing, Virtual, no, virtuous signaling, there's the term. Virtue signaling, did I say it right finally? Close. (laughs) Pete gives up on me after a while. The point is, in today's society, we virtue signal, 
can't even say it. Did you know I went to speech therapy as a second grader for a whole year? It kind of shows. The fact that I can be up here at all is a mercy of God. The, but the point being is, I'm not saying that. It, it was as if I was compelled so many years not being able to see the victim made right, the victim experience the mercy and compassion of God, yet to move on to the next case, the, the next thing. It drove me to where that's what I, when the Lord called me, that's what I, had, I wanted to do because I wanted us to see that they could taste that these people didn't understand. That, that, that all they knew of justice, all they knew of, of a God of justice was what the, the, their community, you know, law enforcement and the, the, the institutions of justice could, could bring to them. But it never could bring, even the victim advocacy programs could never bring them true understanding of a loving, compassionate God who could, who could right their wrongs, who could, who could re reconcile them back to him, who could bring true compassion and mercy. So that's my long story, and that's why that one seems to, to hit me. Um, is there anyone else that has a story has some means to explain why or, or maybe not even why. Maybe you say, I don't know why. But this comes most natural to me. Is there anything there of the, of the four points that seems to come natural for you as it relates to the doctrine of sin and how you perceive it or engage it or want to engage it? Uh, Pete? Listening to you describe, that makes me think there's a difference between being square with someone mm. and being reconciled mm. to someone. Mm. You know, you can have a relationship where you've offended someone and you've done what you could to kind of make things right. And if you were to say to that person, hey, are we good? That the, if the other person says, yeah, we're good, that's not the same as being reconciled. And... Uh, you know, when you're in a, in a legitimate relationship and there's true forgiveness that's given, you're able to find reconciliation and not just be good or just be square. That's good. So. That's great. I appreciate that. That really kind of falls underneath number two. When you recognize and confess the damage that sin has done to your life, nothing is more wonderful to you than the rescuing power of divine grace. It rescues you back to a reconciling or reconciliation with the person that you have uh, division with, and first and foremost with God himself, and then others that we have brought this damage into these relational situations. Anybody else have anything here? No, oh, uh, PJ. I, uh, while you're talking, I... I opened up to Romans 6, and I think it aligns really well with the fourth point. Um, when you live with the destruction of sin in view, you want to be God's tool of justice, mercy, and compassion. Something in the fold there. Those who are suffering sin's consequences, you simply cannot minimize sin without devaluing God's grace, and you're called to be the tool of that grace in the mm. Redeemer's hand, mm. hands. And I think this is more of where I feel like I'm at spiritually, where the motivation is different as a believer to not just not not um, get away from sin for the sake of sin but it's because of thinking of of God and the holiness of God and it, it's more um, 
focused on, I, I think, on God and wanting to be a right tool. So I think of uh, Romans 6 says, um, let not sin therefore reign your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as its instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Mm. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And so I think for me, it's this idea of like being presented as an instrument. And um, uh, when, when I commit sin, it's not, not just the hatred of sin, but it's the, that feeling almost of like disappointment, a disappointment like that disappointing God, mm. having failed God when I'm supposed to be a tool of unrighteousness uh, or a tool of righteousness. And instead I'm acting as a tool of unrighteousness. Um, and so I think that's just kind of what's floating through my head with that fourth bullet point there. You know, when you were saying that, my mind is very visual. I couldn't help but thinking, you know, it's almost like the tool in the toolbox that knows when he opens that box, God opens that box, I'm sitting on the top of this pile. I'm going to kind of work my back down to the bottom of the pile. Maybe he'll pick up another tool. You know, we, are we willing to be that? You're identifying and, and uh, explaining the, the conviction that God has for you that, you know, willing to be a tool of, uh, an instrument of righteousness to do God's work and in other people's lives. And, and really, we all have relationships. When it's other people's lives, it's not like this disconnect. It's their spouses, their friendship, their family members. I mean, these are, and we think about when I say family members, family members of the church of God, the family of God. So, I mean, just, just I appreciate it, your, your perspective, PJ. Uh, anybody else? Well, I think uh, Rob Boy's gonna share. There's good points about being desensitized to the sin that's around us and just mm. becoming used to it. And you see the biblical pattern. You could say that Isaiah was desensitized to it until when? Peter was desensitized to it until when? When they came in the presence of God. Mm. Right? So it's one thing to say, hey, we're desensitized to it and we need to become more sensitive and we need to focus on denying sin. But I think, PJ, you're point is, you know, it's one thing to hate it, but there's, there's a more important piece, which is to come into the presence of God. It's to come into the presence of God. That's how we become more sensitive um, to sin. You know, it's, it's like the right sequence. It's the right order. We come to, you know, deny sin, deny sin. Well, well the best way to deny sin isn't to f- so much as to focus on denying sin, but to come into the presence of the Lord, which we do when we come together as his holy temple stones put together um, as we do today in corporate worship. Um, You know, when Peter and the disciples saw the holiness of Jesus, I mean, one of Peter's response was, you know, depart from me. You know, I'm a sinful man, right? All of a sudden, he became sensitive to it. Why? Not because he all of a sudden focused on the sin around him and started to take notice of it. He was in the presence of Jesus. That's what, same thing with Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. So we have to draw near to the Lord. We draw near to the Lord, a natural byproduct of that will be to deny sin, but it's easy to kind of cut that step out and just jump to denying sin. Amen. Let's continue reading. Uh, Sin is, uh, unless someone else had another one? No hands? Okay. 
sin is a matter of the heart. Caleb. <laughs> Caleb. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> All right. Hope for sinners is only ever found in the person and work of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, because sin is not just a matter of behavior, but it is a matter of the heart. If our problem were simply that we do wrong things, then various systems of behavioral management, control, and reform could help us deal with the problem. But if sin is, in fact, a problem of the heart, then lasting change in a person's behavior will always travel through the pathway of the heart. Sadly, many Christian parents lack a biblical theology of sin, so they reduce Christian parenting down to a careful system of managing and controlling the behavior of their children. Their parenting is a daily system of law, judgment, and punishment. And without knowing it, they place their hope in a system that contradicts the gospel that they say they hold dear. The gospel tells us that if the law had the power to rescue and transform our hearts, Jesus would not have had to come. The gospel tells us that if we had the power in ourselves to keep God's law, then the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus would not have been necessary. The law will expose the sin of your children. The law will give them a guide for their living, but it has no power to change the content and character of their hearts. Only the grace of Jesus has the power to do that. Parents, if the right threat, an increased volume of your voice, a tight enforcement were all your children needed, then the narrative of the gospel would not be needed. Let me pause there for just a second and jump in. I didn't know I'd be editorializing here, but I'm going to reserve the right to do so. Um, I'm thinking of Stephen and Megan. You guys uh, got little ones. You, uh, uh, Brandon uh, and Bethany, you guys got your little ones here right, right now. Um, this describes my parenting as a young Christian. It's the law. It's a system of punishment, and you bring them back into order. And when someone started teaching uh, or would say from the, the pulpit or whatever, you need to teach them the gospel. That made no sense to me, not because I didn't know the gospel. I didn't know what they were getting at. What do you mean teach them the gospel? Yeah, I, I, I told them, yeah, they need Jesus. No, they need Jesus and it's the connection with, look, you have done wrong, and there's nothing you can actually ultimately do without the power of God to do right. You need Jesus in order to, to start performing with a true righteousness that is connected to a heart and a love, wanting to do it out of a right motivation, rather than the motivation being, I don't want to go to my room, I don't want to spank it from Papa. Those are motivations that miss the gospel mark. And so you, you constantly have to think of, how do I shape this now and make this not the law? Certainly, we want, the law helps see that this is the, the confines of what is good and right, but the, the means to bring it about is the gospel. That's the engine. That's the locomotive of change. It's not the threat of this or take away that or, or whatever it happens to be. So, if you're anything like me, and you need something tangible to think through, some of his, his examples here are very good, and we are, Cindy and I are still now, now we're into the, grand, the grandchildren phase, 
and it's challenging. When I had a grandson haul off and, I mean, slug another grandson. He never saw it coming, and the, and, uh, the policeman and me wanted to bring him out of that chair or across the table and let him know, you, we do not do that. And I thought, oh, my goodness, look at how quick I'm back to the law. I missed it all. Here's a second chance at raising children, and I missed it again. The flesh screams the law. And so we've got to work on the gospel presentation to our children. They, they need to know they're wrong. That's the law. That's the law. The, the law helps us realize and helps them see clearly it's wrong. But the change comes. You need Jesus. You need to change heart. Are you going to keep doing this to your brother? And it's not right. It's not God honoring. And you're doing this out of a heart that says, I want. So, anyways, there's my practical editorial. Hopefully that helps you guys. My failures hopefully help those who... Uh, <laughs> or uh, trying to journey without so many failures. Let's continue on. The same is true of marriage. Many Christian marriages are law-bound. They are shaped by the cycle of rules, expectations, disappointment, and punishment. Husbands and wives place the hope of change for their marriage in rules and consequences. Wives assign, them to the, to, assign to themselves the power to change their husbands, and husbands do the same with their wives. But, biblically, but a biblical theology of sin and redemption tells us that no human being has the power to change another. And, and that change in the heart and the life of a person is always the result of the intervention of divine grace. A grace-based marriage isn't about being permissive because, you're, because grace never calls wrong right. Rather, it is dealing with the wrong in a marriage with the intention of being what God, being a tool of God's rescuing and transforming grace in the life of your spouse. You can't take the doctrine of sin seriously and think that all of your marriage needs is the right set of rules. Mm. So, a, <clears throat> so a theology of sin always requires a theology of the heart. Note again the confession of David in Psalm 51. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51, 6 through 10. It is impossible for David to confess his sin without talking about his heart, because he understands that this is where his problem with sin resides, in the thoughts and desires of his heart. So David cries out for heart cleansing, because he knows that that is where his problem lies. David understands that his behavior can only go where his heart has already gone. His struggle with sin is not because of his environment or because Bathsheba was nearer, or because he had too much power as a king. No, this confession comes from a man who knows that he did the horrible things he did, not because of what was outside him, but because of what was inside of him. This is why the bright golden promise of the new covenant is a new heart, the heart of stone removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. The word picture here is very helpful. A new heart doesn't mean a perfect, perfected heart, but a renewable heart. If I have a stone in my hands and I squeeze it with all of my might, nothing happens because it is hard and resistant to change. 
but a soft, fleshy object is malleable and can be molded into any shape I desire. The promise of the new covenant is heart change, without which there is no victory over sin. Jesus pointed to the significance of sin in the heart in his lengthiest teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart, Matthew 5, 27 to 29. Notice that when it comes to the sin of adultery, Jesus erects the moral fence, not at the borders of behavior, but in the heart. The physical act of adultery, always the result of adultery of the heart. Sins of behavior are always the fruit of the sins of the heart. You cannot let your heart go beyond God's fences and expect your actions to stay inside of them. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, theft, false witness, and slander. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. For no good... Tree bears a a bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil uh, treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth To sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The fact that sin always originates in the heart destroys our hope in systems of self-information. Self-reformation, yeah. Did you want me to go on? Uh, Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead and uh, read some of those comments. I will do better next time. It was just a weak moment. I'm smarter now than I was. Hmm. I think I know what to do next time. I think I've learned what I need to know to avoid this in the future. The fact that sin originates in the heart also destroys our ability to say that the big problem is something outside of us. 
You don't know what my boss is like. It has been a tough month. I wasn't feeling well. He pushes my buttons. You haven't met my children. Vivian, you say that with such integrity of statement. (laughs) I've been there, did that. Okay, been there, done that. God bless you. I'm listening to you going, that's, you know, I don't need to to emphasize that now. uh, So we can see that. A teacher has to keep doing the same old thing even though they're not teaching. There you go. Well, we appreciate it. Let's finish with that last paragraph, and then I'll pose the question to us. We must humbly confess that when it comes to sin, our biggest problem is us. We are led astray, not primarily by things outside of us, but by the thoughts, desires, motivations, cravings, and choices of our own hearts. It is humbling to confess that we have no power whatsoever to change our hearts or the hearts of anyone else. Lasting change is only ever an act of divine grace. So we run to our Savior for the rescue and transformation that only He can provide. And as husbands, wives, parents, children, friends, neighbors, members of the body of Christ, pastors, bosses, and workers, it's important to understand what sin has broken in the heart of the other that what sin has broken in the heart of the other person, we have no power to change. So we constantly ask, how can I be God's tool of change in the life of this person? Since sin is a matter of the heart, God is the only reliable change agent. We're only ever tools in his powerful, gracious, and redemptive hands. So with that understanding behind us, here are some questions I'd like to pose you. I'm going to read them all, all five of them. And if you have a comment on any of them, then please do share with us. Without, number one, without speaking to the issue of the specific sin, where have you found success in being God's tool of change in the lives of those that are, that are relationally close to you? Give an example of a situation. Number two. What made it possible for you to, do, to be that tool? And no one person has to, uh, I'm not looking for somebody who they're terrified because I'm going to ask all five questions of them. It's whatever you feel comfortable ask, um, answering. Looking back, how might have you modified or done something differently in originally approaching the person? That, in other words, the person you're trying to help out of their sin. And then uh, four, how did it affect your relationship with the other person when you walked this journey with them and came alongside them how did it affect you and your relationship with it, with that person? And lastly, if you've never really been a tool of change in God's hands, do you know why that is the case? Some of that might be, you know, if you were a younger person in answering number five, you haven't had yet the opportunity because of uh, your age, um, and those opportunities will arrive. But there's other reasons that uh, others of you may have on if you haven't, or maybe you wish and looking back you would have been in a particular situation and now you, you have since then moved on and, and feel the conviction to be that uh, tool of change in God's hand. Anybody want to take on any of these? PJ? Uh, so I found... <clears throat> myself being a terrible tool in big moments and big conversations, Mm. confrontation. um, Mm. I think of conversations with my brother, um, close friends in high school, uh, all sorts of people. When 
uh, in particular, uh, not leading with the gospel, but just going straight to the, you broke this rule, you know, mm. the law, or uh, I think in high school, trying to talk to friends who maybe were doing drugs or doing, um, uh, sleeping with their significant others and things like that, you, you know, not leading with the gospel and the need there. Um, and then even in my own relationship with my brother, I've gone to areas where I'm like, well, you should know better than to do this thing rather than leading with the gospel. And yet the areas where I feel like God has overcome my foolishness and allowed the Holy Spirit to be a tool for righteousness through me has been more on actually the micro level. It's daily conversations with my wife, daily conversations Mm. with my kids. I mean, this church being given opportunities to have moments of teaching or, or hosting men's ministry things. And you see over time, um, small changes that through teaching and grace and all of those things. And so, um, I think I've found that the discipleship described in, in the great commission, when there's true discipleship, it seems that the Lord blesses that work more. And when there's, um, I'm trying to bring the rod of discipline, Mm. um, the not only the natural consequences but also the result of not presenting the gospel i I, what i just did did not do a whole lot for the kingdom um or present uh the way i should so i think that's where i kind of tend to find myself in these cycles where big moments or big conversations tough but all the little conversations you have along the way um seem to god uses those better that's great i and Visualizing what you're saying, God reached in for a needle-nosed pliers to work on some intricacy, and he pulled out a hammer. <laughs> we pulled out, you know, you brought the law. Everything, and, and we struggle with that. We, we are, he designs us to be tools in his hands, and we, we want to be a particular tool rather than another tool because we have our own propensities towards sin and whatnot. I appreciate what you said. I mean, I, I like also not only the fact that you recognize that, you know, you're, you, you've not been a... So there are some times that you've been a destructive tool, is that you, you noted the small things. This doesn't mean formalize this or that, and you have to sit down and have meet at a place, and you have to, you know, it has to be structured. It doesn't mean that. It means you kind of already are always doing it if you're relating to people, if you're communicating with people. And if you're not, I understand. Some people, some, some Christians can be married to a non-Christian, and you don't have this level of transparency, this intimacy of relationship. You have no right to speak into the other person's life because the other person has made it clear that you will receive anger and oppression if you try to speak into their lives. So I get that, that there are some, you can't make this blanket that just because you're a Christian, you have the right to step in. People have to invite you in and in their relationships, they have to make it so that you can engage them at this level, this conversation just to, that is encouraging, to give them the gospel when they're falling down on the law. Um, so no, I appreciate those angles and appreciate it. Go ahead, Pete. Um, as far as uh, being a, a, the question about being a tool, I guess I just want to um, point out that God has a system, I think particularly within the church in Titus chapter 2, And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just at the very beginning, it starts out with, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Mm. So we know that that this idea of being a tool to teach what accords with sound doctrine, and then it gets immediately applied to a particular demographic. 
and it has to do with age. And I think sometimes, um, folks, my observation has been that when men and women get older, they start to check out or coast or feel like they've done their time mm-hmm. or I'm tired or I have my habits and I have my paths that I want to stick to. But Titus chapter 2 says older men, and he describes what they're, um, how they're supposed to conduct themselves, but then they're supposed to um, uh, older uh, uh, teach what accords older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and steadfast. Older women like, uh, likewise, and it gives a description, and it says they are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, and it goes on. And so there is a call to older men and to older women to be that tool and to insert themselves into the lives of younger men and of younger women and to use the experience and the wisdom that they have um, in the lives of the younger people in the church. So I would just encourage, as all of us age, we don't check out, but instead check in and be a part of younger people's lives. That's great. Thank you for the perspective. Retirement allows you uh, full time to go into people's uh, lives and, and love on them. Kind of neat, a neat picture. You no longer have the distraction of, of trying to make a living, and, and hopefully you're in the, the place where you can now give all that wisdom you grade, excuse me, that you have gained and are able to demonstrate by way of your gray hair. You now are, are somebody who is identifiable as uh, somebody that, should, hopefully, and I'm being a little bit playful, that is, has the maturity and the wisdom to share and, and to give. We, we don't want to deprive, deprive the church of that. In addition, Pete, I was thinking as you were saying that, uh, Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone, 6-1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, in other words, you who have a, a maturity that, that has put you in a capacity that you are moving through life, not hindered or not uh, in a place where sin has trapped you. Certainly we all sin, but you are moving. You are not allowing sin to cling to you, is how Hebrews talks about it. If anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What a beautiful picture, the gentleness that, that it needs to accompany that. And so we're not the, the hammer just bringing the law. Is there anything, any else, anyone else would like to comment before we close? Uh, Rob, boy, you got it. In Romans 12, it talks about loving one another with brotherly affection mm. and rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, constant in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality, blessing those who persecute you, not cursing them, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, living in harmony with one another, to associate with the lowly, to never be wise in your own sight, not to repay evil for evil. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, right? So you're engaging, you're getting involved in, in, in people's lives. Um, and it, it might be a little too hard, fast of a line that we need an invitation from other people to... Um, speak into their lives. Uh, You know, even the Lord constantly was coming after Israel, and they earned the title of having hard hearts. And there may be people that we can't say that about because we're waiting for an invitation to speak into their life. Now, if we've made a couple goes at it and they have a hard heart, that's 
a little bit of a different circumstance. But additionally in Romans 12, it puts love and the law together, and it does it in this way. Owe no one, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So it's this, it's this tension of defaulting to law without love or coming to love without law. And the heart of it is love. So when we speak about the law without love, we're not getting to the heart of the matter, and I think that's what we've been reading here today. But we can't get to the heart of the matter without the law because the law defines what love is. And so that's, that's, the, that's the tough context for us to get to, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that and the wisdom that comes from above to be able to navigate that with those whom we love. That's good. I'll close with this. My, my reference to be invited into, I never want to set somebody up, a, a woman, a wife up, who is in an abusive relationship, a physically abusive relationship, with the understanding that they are to speak into the life of the one that is going to physically abuse them if they confront him. So that's the, the, the context of saying, in that situation, if you're not invited in, you may be inviting violence upon yourself. And I don't want to make it such a blanket statement that uh, you see every relationship is, hey, I've been invited in, I'm, and I'm going for it. Um, so let's go ahead, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the, the truths that you shared. I thank you that the, from the, the feedback from the various folks that uh, shared with us, it's given us all uh, an opportunity to think through, ponder on, and uh, hopefully meditate on as a means of figuring out, you know, wh where is it that uh, we need to, to be that tool that is a willing tool to be used as you designed it, realizing that you sharpen the tool, you make it more useful as you have it in your hands. Help us just to be willing to be in your hands as instruments of righteousness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.